And we're going to be transitioning now to Jesus, the sympathetic one, as the high priest. And uh, as we read this text, be thinking about those words of the sent one and also the high priest. In Hebrews 3, verse 1, we read, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Lord, as we look into this text, it is with um, perhaps wonder that we contemplate the mystery of your entrance into this world, to live with humanity, frail flesh. Father, help us to be caught up with the wonder of who you are. Help us to be able to see the glory that, that radiated off of the face of Moses. May we see the, the courage that we can take in you. Help us, Father, to understand this text, but also to apply it uh, to our souls so that we might live uh, vibrant, healthy lives in this world. We anticipate your return. We anticipate the return of your people to this sanctuary. But in a greater way, we anticipate the return of you so that we might worship you directly. Lord, as we look in this text, may we be encouraged. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in this uh, first section, uh, Paul's describing Jesus who was the sent one, who, who came for just a brief period of time. And you see it in verse 1. You see the word apostle. It's very unique that... Uh, that the term apostle would be applied to Jesus, wouldn't you often hear that in the context of the disciples who became the sent ones from Jesus? And uh, that is typically how we would hear it. But Jesus here is the sent one from the Father, and so the, the term apostle, in a lowercase a, not like a, like a title of office, is the way this word is being used. And in this context, the Father is commissioning the Son to take the message to the world. So we saw that in chapter 1, in which God has spoken to our fathers in various ways at different times, but now He's speaking to us through His Son. So this verse, in some ways, summarizes the first section that we have been preaching through over the last number of weeks. Uh, the second word that's used to describe Jesus in verse 1 is the high priest of our confession. We we just started seeing that word last Sunday in, at the end of chapter 2. 
And uh, Jesus was described there as a high priest who was sympathetic to those he was mediating for, those uh, poor, frail creatures. And Jesus was sympathetic. And this now is going to be developed in a way to show us that Jesus is greater than the human high priest that the people of Israel would have been familiar with. Just as Jesus was greater than the angelic messengers, he is greater even than Moses, who in his own right was a sent one and also mediated uh, for sinners. As we saw in the scripture reading, uh, Moses mediated the wrath of God for his sister, begging for the health of his sister. And so Jesus, in in a greater way, does this. And so we're getting into a transition phase, and uh, I had said earlier in this message series that there are warning texts, five warning texts. Next Sunday is going to be the introduction of a new extended warning text, but this is a prelude to it. This would be the positive uh, step that we all ought to take instead of drifting away, taking hold of God taking hold of Jesus. And in this text, we see a certain measure of hope. There are words here that have significance. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence, our boasting in our hope. Hope is an important word and important for holding on to Jesus. Uh, This is the first time we've seen this word in this book, and it's going to become a growing theme through the remainder of this book um, to, to, to hold on to Jesus, the confession of our hope. Strong argument here is actually made. There's another word in verse 6 that's important for us to see, is that word boasting, boasting in our hope. That word is only used by Paul in the New Testament, and it is a very strong argument that this is possibly Paul writing this, or at least a disciple of Paul. But important for us to see why it's important to hope and to hold on to Jesus. Look at back at verse 15 of chapter 2. We have a therefore that transitions this chapter, but in chapter Two, there's a description of something that's not very hopeful and a contrast. In verse 15, it says that uh, Christ came to deliver all those who were through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery, subjected to a lifelong slavery in fear. That's not hopeful. That is um, not boastful. It's cowering. And here, Jesus is being described as the one that we can actually take a great hope in. We don't have to cower in fear because fear is debilitating. God has not called Christians to live in fear, but in power and in love and with a sound mind. That's what 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has given us a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. And this God-word confidence that is being articulated in this text produces a patient endurance 
literally, Paul is asking us in this text to take pride in Jesus, to take pride and to boast in Jesus. Taking pride and boasting in Jesus is, is what kindles a hope that does not faint, that does not fall away. And in this text, we're going to see three ways that we're to take pride in Jesus. Three ways that we can take pride in Jesus. And the first way that we can take pride in Jesus is actually to reflect, to reflect upon our heavenly calling. Verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Notice uh, that there is a great contrast between um, Jesus' partaking in humanity. He shared in in our humanity. And now there's a contrast saying, okay, Jesus did that, but now this has produced some sort of partaking for you of a heavenly calling. You who didn't have any heavenly roots now have heavenly roots because Jesus entered into your human flesh. And now you can take, you have a share in the heavenly calling. That word calling is a really interesting word. I think it, we often use this word, and it would be appropriate for us to use it this way, to like a vocation. A vocation. Someone who has a calling to do something doesn't deviate from that call. While there may not at times be ways to make livelihood from that calling, nevertheless, it characterizes who they are. I think of my father, for example, who had or has, excuse me, a calling to gospel ministry. My father uh, is deeply committed to the word of God so that regardless of where his source of revenue is coming from, he nevertheless is committed to word-centered ministry. His whole life has been orchestrated by that calling. And I think that in a similar way as Christians, we have a heavenly calling that has determined the trajectory of how we live our lives. And it's to be a Christian, you have a different trajectory than your co-workers, than your neighbors. You have a heavenly calling that's taking you somewhere. It's, it, it's under compulsion. You can't help but go there because you have, been, you have a calling that's come from heaven. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, there are two phrases, short phrases in this text that remind us that we have a heavenly calling and they discuss parts of our calling. And the first is that phrase where he says, therefore, holy brothers, therefore, holy brothers, you who share. First time the word holy is found in this book. And uh, as we have encountered the word brother before. This is the first time we're seeing the word holy. And this Christian fraternity is being described as holy. Now, typically, when we hear the word fraternity, we think not of holiness, do we? In fact, uh, particularly in a college experience, it's a metaphor at times for debauchery. 
But the Christian fraternity is one of holiness unto the Lord. One of complete devotion to God. And holiness, I think, often is seen in a very negative way at times. The things that we are kept from, but we neglect the positive that we are, we are then devoted to. That's what holiness um, brings us to. Um, when we are considered holy brethren, what we are being described as, as Christians in a relationship with God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a holy community. And so we enter into, if you will, the family of God as holy and beloved uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. How does this come about, this entrance into the family of God? It comes about um, not through circumcision. That would be a religious ritual. It does not come about through ethnicity. You don't born into this physically. Rather, it comes through a confession of faith or a profession of faith. That's the other phrase that's in this text. Uh, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, or in some translations, profession. We make a commitment that binds us to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an expression of obligation and commitment. It is the faith response to the action of God. We don't do anything that merits a relationship with God. We simply rest in the truths that have been presented to us. We repent from going our own way, and we rest and respond by faith in what He has done. There's no physical sacrifice that we take to the altar, if you will. Christ was that sacrifice. He died for us in our place. And through faith in him, this is the the public call to repentance, we confess or we profess our need for righteousness, to have relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, a confession of faith or a profession is something that's serious. It's not something that is to be taken lightly. When we make a confession of faith, it's witnessed through the waters of baptism. We're declaring our allegiance to walk with Christ till death do us part. It is appropriate that the wedding and marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and the church, and individual members of that church. If I were to stand at the altar and say, Abby, I love you, but I would like to be able to visit with so-and-so every once in a while, that just wouldn't go very well. That would not be a a valid profession. There would be a jealousy that would be rightly provoked within her, and I'm using this as a metaphor to help us understand that if we have the Holy Spirit within us, that the Holy Spirit within us is provoked to jealousy to draw us back to Him because of the profession or confession of faith that we have made to Him. Coming into relationship and having a heavenly calling is a significant deal. 
This is not something that we ought to be taking lightly. Now, the old covenant had been done away with, with all of its rituals. And uh, nonetheless, the new covenant in Christ is marked by the blood of Jesus Christ. It also shows us that we have an exclusive commitment to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, these two twin truths that I've just described for us, the, the, within the concept of the heavenly calling, we have a brotherhood, a holy brotherhood. We have a confession of faith that draws us into this heavenly calling. We're related to Jesus by confession of faith. And so what this means is that what happens to us here on earth doesn't really matter when considering our heavenly calling. And we are brought into relationship with Jesus Christ who sits and reigns at the right hand of God. I bring this to our attention that there are many in the past, many Christians who have taken very seriously their heavenly calling and not allowed fear to keep them from doing what they have been called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. For example, John and Margaret Patton um, were missionaries to the New Hebrides Islands uh, in the Pacific. They went there from Scotland when exploration was still a thing. Back in 1866, um, they went to the New Hebrides to a native people who were cannibals. They occasionally ate flesh of their defeated foe. It was, it was a, a culture that, that lived in a slavish fear. They lived under a slavish fear, just like what we saw in chapter 2 of Hebrews, uh, a fear of death. And they produced acts worthy of death. They practiced infanticide. They, they did widow sacrifice. And Patton wrote this. He said, their whole worship want, was one of slavish fear. So far as I could learn, they had no idea of God of mercy or of grace. Yet over 15 years, that whole island turned to Jesus Christ. Patton, who, who went there with courage... He had courage that was founded upon his heavenly calling. In fact, uh, as he was preparing to go, a respected elder had tried to dissuade him from leaving Scotland and the original Hebrides. And uh, in a public meeting, he, this elder said, the cannibals. I mean, you're, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And this is what Patton said in response. Mr. Dixon... You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There is there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer." He, reflecting upon his heavenly calling, was able to boast in Jesus Christ. And that in itself kindles a hope. And as believers, this is our calling. This is a reason why we can 
boast in Jesus Christ. He is greater than all. He rules over all, and he has called us into relationship with himself. Second, uh, second reason that we can, we can boast in Jesus Christ, and that is found in verses 3 and 4, that we can count Jesus worthy of greater glory. We can count Jesus worthy of greater glory. Look at verses 3 through 4. I'm going to read them again because we read them earlier in our text or message. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now, Paul is talking to Jewish believers here, and as he's talking to Jewish believers, um, they had given up the legal code of Moses. And for them, the law was their identity. It was a way of life. To give up the glory of the Mosaic law was to, to eschew their heritage They saw the Mosaic Law as reflecting the glory of God to the nations. In fact, in the scriptures, they would have read about Moses coming out of the tent of meeting and having an interaction with with God and, and receiving law and bringing instruction to the people. And there's an account in Exodus that talks about the the glory that was on the face of Moses, just radiating off his face. In fact, it's uh, also recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about how that that law emitted a glory even as it exposed the shortcomings of the people of God. We know that that we all fall short of the glory of God, don't we? And that's what the law shows us, but it also shows us the positive beauty of God. Now, I bring this to our attention because there is an interesting word picture that's embedded in that story of the glory just emanating off of the face of, of, of Moses, which I believe is a part of the backstory in this text. He's saying here that Jesus is counted of more glory than, than Moses, who had glory radiating off his own face. The Hebrew word in Exodus uh, that's used to describe the glory going off his face is actually literally the word horn. The Hebrew didn't have a word for rays like we do. When you look at the sun, they didn't have a way of describing, you can't even really look at the sun, to let alone know that there, is, there are rays that come off of the sun. But they described it as as horns, literally possessing or displaying horns. Literally, it, it was, if you look in the book of Hebrews chapter 34, it said, he did not know that his face had been become horned. In fact, uh, artwork during the Renaissance actually painted Jesus or depicted, excuse me, Moses as having horns. And this one, this is a Michelangelo. You see the little horns that are sticking off of his, his head. And that actually comes because when Jerome translated the the Bible into Latin, he translated it, he just left it as horns. And so people would read that in Latin and depict Moses as having horns. 
We may laugh at that, but what this really demonstrates is that the Jewish people had a great reverence for Moses, and they saw things coming off of his face, and they didn't know what to describe these things. And the glory that's coming off of Moses' face, the author here is showing us that that's Jesus. In Hebrews 1, in Hebrews 1, we hear Jesus described as the radiance of the glory of God. Moses, as a human being, interacted with that radiance, but the radiance itself is the Son of God. That's the beauty of Jesus. Paul is talking big about Jesus here. He's boasting about Jesus. He's demonstrating a boastfulness. It's like, you think Moses is good? (laughs) Jesus is this good. (laughs) He's great. But that attitude kindles a hopefulness. It allows us to boast in Jesus, which is who is superior. And we live in a world that puts Jesus in the dirt. His name is used as a convenient curse word. And when bad things happen, people express their frustration by, and their anger by using the name of Jesus as a, a flippant... G- Jesus is greater than that. And this whole world system is set against Jesus. And instead of cowering in a corner, we as Christians ought to be boasting in Jesus. This is what it means to consider Jesus of worthy of greater glory so that we orientate our whole lives around him. And when we make much of him, we... We show the principalities and the powers of the air that they are nothing. When we obey God rather than men, we demonstrate the glory of Jesus. When we prioritize the assembly, we give glory to Jesus. When we build others up rather than tear them down, what we are doing by our actions, we're giving glory to Jesus. We ought to be taking pride in Jesus because that kindles hopefulness. It creates a hopefulness that will hold on to Jesus. The third way here is we ought to consider Jesus who is faithful. He is faithful. Now, I jumped over verse 2. I'm going to come back now to verse 2 and then look at verses 5 and 6 together. But in verse 2 we have uh, the description of Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Now drop down to verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In this, these verses, what we're seeing is the faithful one, the one who is dependable. Growing up, I remember that my father 
had a pretty hard time finding dependable cars. Sadly, domestic vehicles were the worst back in the 70s and 80s. And when I uh, first married Abby, my father handpicked a domestic car for us as our first car, and it was the worst. So what did I do? I turned to the import vehicles, which had a more dependable track record. And so to this day, I have been buying imports, even though ironically they're made domestically, most of them. But the reality is we take pride in that which is dependable. My neighbor has a tractor that was built in Russia during the Cold War. And he tells me that its simple design is what made it dependable. I hope I got that right. But he was very proud to drive it over and show it off to me. The reality is, Jesus is such a one who is dependable. He was dependable, just like Moses, but even more so. He was faithful in all of God's house, not as a servant. Moses was the servant. Jesus, though, is the son. Now, the word house in our modern ears, sounds like a physical house, and that's not the way it's being used here. Rather, it's being used as the dynastic line of kings. And we know this because there are cross-references that take us to an explanation of prophecies in which David's house would be built forever. In fact, I will use a look at First Samuel to see an example of a faithful prophecy of a faithful coming priest. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 35 describes an incident in which Eli, Eli who did not give guidance to his own children and the children grew up and these boys became womanizers and they were corrupt and taking bribes at the gate of the temple itself, and a prophet came to Eli and said that since he had been unfaithful in God's house, he was going to raise up a priest who would be faithful in his house. And this is what the prophet said in First Samuel. said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, the seeds of this were David, but the greater aspects of this are the people of God. And you see that come and develop even further in First Chronicles 17. David wanted to make a house for God, but God promised an even greater house to come. And this is what is described in First Chronicles 17, 14. I will be to him, that is the offspring of David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. There's going to be relational relationship. I will not take away my steadfast love from him as I took it away from him who was before you. I will confirm him with him in my house and in my kingdom, and his throne shall be established forever. And as we know, these all point to Jesus, the faithful son who did all of God the Father's heart. 
And Jesus' house is obviously much greater than Moses' house of responsibility. Moses was a servant to a single nation. Jesus is a son who is a son to all the nations. Another phrase here that we could probably put into this is that Jesus' house is a kingdom. It's a kingdom. How do you enter into this kingdom? You enter it through new birth. You become born again. Otherwise, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, right? I guess there are many metaphors that describe God's house, God's kingdom that are in the New Testament. God's sheepfold is another one of them. And when you are in the sheepfold of God, in a greater way than Moses, Jesus ministers mercy for all who call upon his name. And the beauty of Jesus is his dependability for you, his people. Notice in verse 6, he says, And we are in it. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Here the author is accenting belonging to Jesus' house, belonging to his kingdom, belonging, if you will, to his sheepfold. And if you are in that sheepfold, no man can pluck you out of his hand. This is because of the heavenly calling that you have. Nothing can separate you from the binding love of Christ. This is something to boast in. You will boast in it if indeed you are in his household. He will not let you go. He put his spirit within you and it provokes to jealousy so that he retains you. He will not let you go, but he will draw you through trials to have a deeper faith, a deeper relationship with him, if indeed you are in his house. What do we do with this word, indeed, if we hold fast? Nowhere in the New Testament than here do we find so many repeated insistences that continuity... In the Christian life is a display of reality. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this continual kind of repetitive context of idea that that those who are his are sticking with him, persevering. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints refers to those saints who demonstrate. Christ's relationship because they do persevere to the end. The Holy Spirit is there, provoking to jealousy and also pulling closer, not running away. The test of your faith is what it takes to stop you. And so here, on the edge of warning, the next passage that we're going to go into is is a warning text to test our faith, to see whether or not we're being provoked to return or we're hardening our hearts and walking away. Where are we? Are we in the house or are we out of the house? And the test of our faith is what it takes to stop us. And so here, 
He's saying when people lose their enthusiasm for Christ, very often it's because they're looking to something else for their hope. Very often people will allow something to capture their eyes, their attention, and it will be a competition for the glory that Jesus alone deserves. And so, here in this text, he says, boast in the hope that you have. Boast in it. You have a heavenly calling. You have a a person who's worthy of more glory than, than Moses. You have Jesus who was faithful. You know, he keeps covenant for you. He is going to make sure that you do not, you do not leave. And so there is a, an impetus to take pride in Jesus. And taking pride in Jesus has this effect of kindling hope. That which we take pride in is something that we put hope in. I put hope in something very inferior like a car. I take pride in it. I, I talk about it. I like it. Do we also not like Jesus? I hope that we do. We then ought to be taking pride in Jesus. He should be on our lips. And so, kindling hope in Jesus is a way in which we, we take hold and we do not slip away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in the Word this morning. Help us to see the dependability of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that that the mercies are new every morning. You do not let us go. You hold us fast. I ask, Father, that within all of our hearts that we would be kindling a hope in you. Remembering our our calling. Remembering you who are worthy of so much more glory. Lord, may we be faithful because you have been faithful. May we be faithful because we love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.